the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to part two of Armchair Politics. This week's uh, political roundtable on the Tom Sumner program consists of our uh, panel of political pundits, our roundtable regulars. On the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Thanks for being here, as always. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back to you as well. Thank you, Tom. And joining us uh, this week at, at the round table is a Democratic strategist and lifelong resident of Genesee County uh, who uh, currently serves as a communications advisor for the Michigan House Democrats. Jasper Jazz Martis joins us at the round table jazz welcome back thanks for being here this week happy to be here and having a lot of fun thanks i told you before we started we were going to have fun today um governor gretchen whitmer's annual address to the legislature will again be delivered virtually this year given the coronavirus's persistent spread and impact on michigan Whitmer and House Speaker Jason Wentworth, a Republican from Farwell, announced Monday she'll deliver her fourth State of the State in a live speech broadcast January 26th. The speech is an important opportunity for Whitmer, both as chief executive of the state and as a political candidate on the ballot this year. Her administration's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic response will be front and center during the entirety of the gubernatorial campaign, as will her ongoing promise to fix the damn roads. What's happening with the damn roads? Hmm. Well, Mer- I'm seeing a good number of yellow barrels all over the place, <laughs> at least I hadn't in the last, last fall and so forth. I, um... And to tell you the truth, as evidence, I have not bought... Um, New tires, I had to have to have my car aligned over the last 18 months. Well, so, yeah, because uh, we've all been staying at home for being... two years. Pardon? <laughs> we've all been staying at home for two years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did right. some. <laughs> yeah, I, I know there's still a problem, but that uh, too takes time, and, and I think that uh, she's, uh, with all of the other issues that she does, I'm not defending it, but... Uh, I can see that people in power have tough jobs, and there's half of the population that's against them, and the other half is for it. And how you make sense of American government like that, I don't know. Then the Russians and the Chinese and everybody else is interfering. 
Well, a coalition of um, advocacy organizations hopes to compile enough signatures from Michigan voters to change the state's constitution to ensure people have the right to an abortion. The group, comprised of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Michigan, American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan, and the nonprofit Michigan Voices, launched the bid to put a constitutional amendment before voters as the U.S. Supreme Court prepares to rule on cases that may imperil a nearly 50-year-old decision affirming abortions are legal. Michigan is one of 26 states that still has a law on the books that makes it illegal for someone to perform an abortion or assist someone in an abortion unless necessary to save the life of the pregnant person. The law was essentially nullified after the 1973 ruling in Roe v. Wade, uh, but it was never repealed. Um, There's been a lot of talk about this, and um, and and there will be a lot more in the in the next few months as the the Supreme Court begins to rule on some of these cases. But does the future of reproductive rights rest with state legislatures now? Uh, it's it's looking like that. I mean, we we don't know for sure what the court's going to do, but at least the initial indications are that uh, whether they overturn Roe Wade or simply cut it back an awful lot that when push comes to shove, an awful lot of those decisions are going to rest with the states. And so we're going to see 50 different state battles on the abortion issue rather than one single national issue. Well, the uh, Tom? Yeah. Tom, Go ahead, um, Henry. Paul and Dad, um, uh, please explain this difference. What's the difference between appeal and uh, uh it's, it's appealed or or um, repealed, or what's the other word you used? Overturned. 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 What's the difference? Um, Explain the intricacies of that. Overturned. Well, I guess no, nullified. Nullified. It was the word that you used. Nullified. Well, it's been nullified. Nullified why? is the better word too. Um, yeah. Yeah, because conventional wisdom seems to think that the Supreme Court will not want to go back and take a decision it has made and undo it. So rather than do that, they will support some initiatives that make it ineffective or essentially nullify it without taking it off the books. Uh, in but other you words, can't, other you can't other use it. Which is what the Texas law would do pretty much, and, and to some degree the Mississippi law would as well. But uh, if it's nullified, uh, it can't provide any action strategy for anyone who would want to do something else. It's no, nullified. No, it can't. And, and, this is, and, and this is strictly a matter of, um, what would you call it, pride, ego, um, Dignity uh, well, of the it may court. Be any kind of institutional court. The, the, the court doesn't like to say we were wrong on a decision, so they'll say, "Well, we were, we're just modifying what we said 50 years ago." Um, I mean, that, that that may be the outcome. We'll we'll see what happens. But uh, I say yeah. I think the bottom line is it's going to go back to the states uh, in a, in a fairly complex kind of way. I suspect. Uh, yeah, could, I, I agree. I think that if you look in the past 50 years when it comes to abortion rights, uh, the 
I don't think Roe v. Wade will ever officially be overturned, but it's death by a thousand cuts. And that's what we've seen for the past 50 years, where, uh, you know, the actual original ruling said that a woman has an access, access to privacy, access to an abortion up until 24 weeks of pregnancy. Right. And uh, what's interesting is that you look since that ruling in the 70s, uh, a lot of the state level uh, governments have passed legislation to go from 23 weeks to 22 weeks to 21 weeks, all the way up until when we're talking about the Texas law that says four weeks. And I think we're reaching, uh, when it goes back to our conversation on lack of faith in institutions, uh, I think the Supreme Court and uh, Chief Justice Roberts in particular understands that people are losing faith in the Supreme Court. Uh, something that I think is a good bellwether of what blue states are going to do is last week, New Jersey codified into law the right for any two individuals to marry one another. So making gay marriage legal at the state level. Now, we all know that that's legal at the federal level, but putting it in writing that, God forbid, that decision is overturned in New Jersey, no matter what, you will be able to have access to marriage. And I think going back to Paul's point, that's what we're going to see when it comes to abortion access, where a state like Michigan, the moment that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, abortion is illegal, according to a law from 1931. So when that law was passed, you know, so was uh, alcohol was illegal, too, because of prohibition. So, True. Uh, there's been a lot of changes. Well, and that's and that's why I, I was suggesting that what we're seeing with this uh, coalition of advocacy organizations is um, the grassroots movement in Michigan, but we'll see it in other states, I'm sure, to um, address this issue because conventional wisdom seems to think that while the Supreme Court will not overturn Roe v. Wade, um, and I and I like Jazz's term, uh, "death by a thousand cuts." Um, they're they're going to just chip away at it until it's just completely gutted. I think that the referendum is a good idea as well because so often, um, and one of the reasons why I love this show so much is you know people <laughs> with different opinions from different sides can sit down and have conversations and come to. Uh, you know, some sort of compromise and solution. And something that I think is important when we're talking about something as touchy of a subject as abortion is that when you look at poll after poll and when you talk to people, this is not a 50-50 issue. Uh, over 60% yeah. of Americans support some access to abortion. So this is not as much of a 50-50 issue. There is some sort of consensus. We just need to figure out what that consensus is. True. Yeah, it's just, as you say, it's not a black and white issue. The public is very much in the middle on, on that issue, and a lot of details to be sure, but it's, it's not, you're either for it or against it, and all, there's a lot of points in between. Well, Detroit state lawmakers and other Wayne County residents have officially filed suit against Michigan's Independent Redistricting Commission and are asking the Michigan Supreme Court to order the panel to redraw its maps. The lawsuit was initially announced Monday by Representative Tanisha Yancey, a De uh, Detroit Democrat who chairs the legislature's uh, Detroit caucus and other supporters, although the complaint was not filed with the court until late Wednesday evening. 
the Detroit caucus, the Romulus uh, City Council, former State Representative Wendell Byrd, 14th Congressional District Executive Board Member Carol Weaver, and Wayne County resident Daryl Woods are arguing the state legislative and congressional maps passed by the independent panel unfairly split up the city of Detroit's black residents and violate the uh, Voting Rights Act. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, and I think the week before, uh, and, and we were expecting suits to, to happen, maybe not quite this fast, but should there be special accommodation for minority representation factored into district mapping? Hmm. Well, the civil rights laws do sort of require that you're not gerrymandered minorities out of districts. Um, but it does present a dilemma, particularly for, for Democrats, in the sense that if you create very heavily all-minority districts, that tends to, let's say in an urban area, that tends to make the suburban areas far more likely to go Republican uh, rather than, than creating more diverse districts. So it, it, it's, a, it's a political dilemma as much as a legal one. And I agree with you, Paul. And, and uh, I'd like to hear what Jazz has to say about this, too. But <clears throat> when they first created this process of carving out districts for uh, uh, minorities, uh, they did so without giving that district an equal opportunity to express opposing opinions within the district. That means that the district would have to be uh, close to 50% between plus or minus five for Republicans to win in that district. <clears throat> you know, black Republicans are part of the district as well. They weren't quite as prominent in those days, but now they're growing. And they're <clears throat> I don't think that <clears throat> the public doesn't mind the district being half Republican and half Democrat. Uh, just as long as one or the other can win those districts. You have to work hard to do that. And that's the problem with the dilemma that I believe that folks in Detroit, this is where they have it wrong. That is not American democracy. It is not an expression of American democracy. And I know gerrymandering creates a, a whole new perspective toward it. But uh, I just think that there are, uh, the two-party system must be represented in every community. What's it's interesting about this issue, and this is one of those issues where it's, for most uh, most voters, it's a little too inside baseball. It's like when you get out in the deep weeds talking about the Electoral College. A lot of people have heard the phrase gerrymandering so often and for so long they think that's the term for redistricting. They don't realize that that's the negative outcome, that gerrymandering right. is drawing a district for a purpose other than equal representation in terms of just total headcount. Anyway, we've got to take a break here, um, but I'm curious to see what Jazz's thoughts are on the uh, issue yeah. of redistricting and uh uh, minority representation. Um, so we'll pick that up when we come back, and then we'll see how things are uh, doing in Washington. If you're listening to us on 92.1 LPFM, Our Voices Radio, WFOV, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. 
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by uh, Jazz Martis. And um, I think uh, just just before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about whether or not there should be special accommodation for minority representation factored into district mapping. And... Um, which essentially is gerrymandering. And uh, Henry had made the comment that he was curious what Jazz's thoughts were, and I am as well. So uh, before we move on to some some of the national headlines, uh, we'll, we'll give Jazz a chance to weigh in on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that the, the point that um, you all have made specifically about how um, when it comes to minority representation, a lot of those provisions come from the Voting Rights Act. I think it's um, important that we look to that. And, and, and Supreme honest. Court rulings. It's, the it's only absolutely. time the only time the Supreme Court will rule on anything to do with redistricting typically is if it has to do with race. Absolutely. So I think that that's something, and in my own life, I think that I'll have to definitely take uh, a closer look at that. But I think something that we're learning is that the process of redistricting, even with this independent commission, it's messy, right? That we are, um, we've kind of reached a consensus on both sides of the aisle that gerrymandering is bad, and we're trying to figure out what to do about it. And so as we've been holding these conversations about what the maps would look like, and as they there being court challenges. We're, having, we're understanding that this is a difficult process, and I think it's important, it's important that we're doing this, but also having the humility to understand that this is also, you know, experimenting. There, there's the old saying that the states are laboratories of democracy, and the independent commission may work for our state. It might work for others. It might not work for others. Um, I will say that when it comes to uh, redistricting in Genesee County, I, I, I will have some uh, exciting news to share about that in my own life at the end of the month. But uh, that's all I can say about that for now, just a little teaser. But I think... Um, I think the way that the lines are being drawn, um, you know, there are going to be court challenges and just understanding that uh, redistricting, just like democracy, is messy. Well, I'd be really really frustrated with you, Jazz, if this was uh, one of those shows that had a permanent breaking news logo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one thing they put in, it was just a little hint. Um, well, and and I hope you'll and I hope you'll keep me in the loop. I, I you know I, I joke a lot about uh, <laughs> my show isn't as much about news as it is about getting to know the people who make the news. But um, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's 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 go ahead and drop redistricting and and move on to what's going on in. Uh, the nation's capital. President Joe Biden on Thursday marked the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection by forcefully calling out former President Donald Trump for attempting to undo American democracy, saying such an insurrection must never happen again. 
For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob reached the Capitol. Biden said in a speech from the U.S. Capitol that lasted just under 30 minutes, but they failed. They failed, and on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such an attack never never happens again. In a direct shot at Trump, Biden added, his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept the loss, or he can't accept that he lost. Biden has typically avoided speaking directly about his predecessor since taking office and pointedly did not say his name on Thursday, instead making more than a dozen references to the former president, but the president's blistering speech nonetheless confronted Trump's election lies and post-presidency behavior, accusing him of spreading falsehoods about the 2020 election, refusing to accept defeat, and holding him accountable for inciting a violent mob of his supporters to storm the U.S. Capitol. Was this a preview of the kind of re-election campaign the president will run if former President Trump runs in 2024? I think that's possible. I think that was one of, certainly by, by a long shot, maybe one of Biden's more forceful speeches. And it seems to have generally been well-received. So, yeah, if it comes down to a Biden-Trump contest again, I suspect that would be the format we're going to see. I don't believe that there's any right or wrong as to what uh, the future holds for us. Because uh, there were violations on both sides here. And uh, I think to condemn the election process uh, as being illegal <laughs> is, is wrong, and it damages the American system of government. But I do think that there was cheating. I, I think that there's evidence of cheating. And this is what makes the, pres the former president's argument so, compe so compelling because they did find evidence of cheating. All you have to do is find one piece of evidence, and that kind of turns to put a spin on where we go. And so there are probably things that should be yeah, but see, that's be corrected. That's that's the problem I have with uh, you know the way things have been reported um, over the last several years, Henry. One piece of evidence in in a vast, huge, uh, complex uh, machination doesn't mean it was enough to throw anything one way or the other. But yet that one piece of, of evidence, when shown under the, the brightest possible spotlight, makes it seem like it could. And, and what's yeah. interesting is when they, when they have, I mean, a nation of 300 million people and 180 million voters, yeah, there were a few, a few examples of cheating here and there. What's interesting is, though, is they were very bipartisan. I mean, <clears throat> the examples that were out there were as many pro-Republican as pro-Democratic cheaters in the whole batch, in the whole, in the whole mix. You know, if, yeah, if I, Henry, if you watched I, cable, <laughs> cable news, and it doesn't even matter which channel, you would think that there were school shootings going on every day. But how many are there really in a calendar year? 
and and if it's a dozen, it's it's way too many. But if it's a dozen, that's out of a hundred and forty some thousand schools nationwide. Yes, but statistics don't recognize that. They don't consider if there's one piece of uncredible evidence in it, you it, it uh, does create an argument for the opposing side. But I think we have to dig a little deeper. Like this, this one didn't didn't get by me, and and I want to share this one to stay on sort of the same topic about how you present a case. On Friday, Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Speaker of the House, sent Biden, President Biden, that is, a letter inviting him to give um, the uh, State of the Union address. Um, the President has accepted the invitation of the Speaker of the House to deliver the State of the Union address on Tuesday, March 1st, 2022, Principal Deputy Press Secretary Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre told reporters traveling with the president to Colorado Friday, the State of the Union address is a tradition that offers presidents a chance to highlight their priorities and agenda at the start of a new year. If Biden gives a speech on March 1st, that would be about a month later than is typical for the annual address. Since 1934, all State of the Union speeches have happened in January or February, delivering the State of the Union in March, would give Biden more time to try to accomplish some of his legislative goals before addressing Congress and the nation. Is the victory of meeting a goal as effective when the goal has been moved to allow more time? Hmm. <laughs> Good question. See, yeah, they're, not, um... they're not sliding that one by me. Well, um, there may be circumstances. There may be circumstances to uh, to create that need, but it is better done as a statute requires it to be done in January, January twentieth, I think it is. Well, that's when the inauguration has to happen. Okay, January. January I I think that is one of the later State of the Union messages I can ever recall. I mean, as you say, it's usually January or February. Well, according to CNN, it's never been done later. Yeah, that sounds sounds to me. Looks suspicious. So, Tom, uh, I I appreciate you bringing that up because I I hadn't really thought of the maybe there's some more strategy behind that. Maybe, you know, uh, maybe I was just a bit naive. I kind of I just assumed that it might have something to do with covid. But I think going from your perspective of are they trying to get something done? um, You know, President Biden is coming out to say that the filibuster should be reformed in order to pass voting rights. Um, I don't know how successful that endeavor ultimately will be, but I think I think you're right. If they're trying to get something done, um, I think when it comes to build back better at this point, they need to break it up into smaller pieces. I, I agree it. with you, Jazz. But yeah. it might be something like that. I and I, I and I think um, you know I, I it's almost like I picture uh, a series of of conversations over the last few weeks starting with, well, it doesn't look like we're going to get, you know, build back better by Christmas. 
and well i don't think we're going to get it done by the you know the first of the year and then it you know it was kind of like well maybe we can maybe we can include it in the state of the union you know maybe we'll have it done by then and then all of a sudden they start picking a date for the state of the union it's looking like no they're not going to have it done by then so then all of a sudden the state of the union is on march 1st and i think they're they're trying to get those two things uh exactly what uh jazz just mentioned build back better and um the voting rights bill yeah i mean the the, the pressure is clearly on to, to to pass some kind of a voting rights bill and um as i say they were in georgia the other day you know pushing it there and we'll see whether they get the votes to to pull it out of the pull it through and I don't know whether they're going to get the votes from the Republican side. It's going to be uh, Yeah, so that's problematic yet. And Henry, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on this as a Republican. So from my understanding, there are some Republicans like Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and, and Mitt Romney who have shown interest in voting rights reform. But I think the question is, more filibuster reform to get that done than ultimately the the voting reform so and and none of those people you mentioned jazz support ending the filibuster and and that's what i was going to ask like do you think it's possible because we have to do that to do the other one well i don't think it's possible i don't think you're going to get enough republicans to to um eliminate the filibuster or to do away with it I don't think there are some Democrats who object to that as well. So that's not likely to be a practice that will end. So. You know, speaking of the filibuster, one thing that I've learned in the last week or so is that how much the filibuster has changed. It used to be a very rare kind of thing when somebody had to stand up and speak for 10 or 12 or 24 hours against a bill endlessly like the old uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington kind of movie. But now you don't need to do that. And then there's, there's so well, many yeah, it's, exceptions it's, carved out for the filibuster that I'm really kind of wondering how much of the filibuster is even left. It's uh, a, it's a form that you fill out now. Right, yeah. <laughs> you just If you're not willing to read out of a phone book and, you know, hold on <laughs> exactly. straight, you know, take the word filibuster out of your mouth, Senator, whoever you are. Right. Yeah. Right. How how are we going to have any of these, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart moments in Mr. Smith goes to Washington? You know, I mean, even even uh, even Ted Cruz reading Dr. Seuss. You know, it, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, oh, this is uh, this is an interesting one. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is considering formally asking former Vice President Mike Pence to voluntarily appear before the panel with the possibility that request could come by the end of this month. Representative Benny Thompson, the committee's chair, told NPR that the committee will meet next week to discuss offering Pence a formal invitation to voluntarily appear. I think you could expect that 
I think you could expect that before the months out, the Mississippi Democrats said, of the invitation to Pence. Pence certified the 2020 presidential election despite an extensive pressure campaign led by then-President Donald Trump and his allies to halt the process. A committee aide confirmed to CNN that the group is considering an offer for Pence to appear, but a final decision has not been made. Do you think the former VP would accept the committee's invitation, or might hmm. he end up being No, subpoenaed? I don't think so. Remember, you think the Republican he would have Party... To, he would have to be subpoenaed? Yes. Yes, he has to be subpoenaed. Do you think he'd respond yeah. to a subpoena, Henry? Would, would, he, would he reject um, the subpoena? No, I, he has a loyalty to the Republican Party. And, you know... <laughs> And the but Republican he's, Party is everything shown, on that side of the fence. But but he's and, also shown, Henry, as you often do, um, a loyalty to the system and the rules and yes, the way things yes. go. If if he right. were subpoena, if he were subpoena, if he were to get a subpoena, I think he would obey the subpoena. Oh yes, he, he might would do not, that because that would be a duty. He he might not voluntarily. Accept yeah, right. an invitation, but if he were subpoenaed, yeah. I think he'd. I think he'd go. I don't think he'd try and get out of it. Yeah, they don't I, want any backtrackers. Uh, they got people uh, that are uh, uh, named uh, rhinos and all other kind of names, and nobody wants to be considered a rhino, uh, whoever they are. Uh, but uh, I don't believe that Mike Trump, Pence will. Uh, accept the role that way he becomes uh, go back on his original decision. He voted to uh, accept the findings, and that's it. Do you think Pence has got any kind of future at all in the Republican Party? I mean, considering how Trump has dumped all over him after. Yeah, I think he does. You know, the Republican Party is a is a wide range of different beliefs and people and expectations. So uh, you can't condemn them as, as a solid block of anything, you know. And I, I think that um, the former vice president knows that, and, and I, I agree that if he's subpoenaed, he'll show up. But I think that the way that he is probably going to be um, thinking this through is what are the optics of it? Is this going to be something that CNN would cover all day long? And would it be on all the main cable news shows? And would it be what Rachel Maddow's talking about for the next month straight? Or, and in that case, I think that he would try to stop it at all costs because it would damage his standing in the Republican Party. But if it were something that's behind closed doors, preventing leakage, just sharing his perspective, I think that um, it, it would be much more likely that he would not throw a fit about participating. And that would also help his standing in the Republican Party, where they're not going to be able to cut ads of him, you know, collaborating with Adam Schiff or Liz Cheney or anybody else. It would be him simply following his duty. And that's it. And I think that's probably if he wants to stay having some sort of stature in the Republican Party, he's going to make it as um, as le as non-theatrical as possible. And I'd like to say this real quickly. He there's the example of the epitome of public trust is in Mike Pence. Because he thinks through things before he acts. And he tries to stay within the parameters 
uh, the expectations of the people who voted for him and the Republican Party and, uh, and not stray away from, and get involved in other things that don't uh, accomplish those, those views. Well, let's see if we got time to squeeze one more in here before we get to the break. As the Supreme Court debated federal authority to impose a vaccine requirement on workers, the nine justices could not help but reveal their varying sentiments about the depth of America's COVID-19 pandemic and the value of vaccines during the dramatic special hearings that lasted nearly four hours the conservative dominated court appeared ready to reject the biden administration's vaccine or test requirement for large employers but perhaps allow a vaccine mandate for certain health workers in medicaid and medicare funded facilities the justices competing uh, vantage points and ideologies particularly against broad regulatory powers, were evident throughout the session. How do you think SCOTUS will rule on vaccine mandates? Hmm. I... You got me. I don't know, but I'm, I'm just, given the nature of the Supreme Court, I'm just inclined to think they're probably going to either deny it or cut it back substantially, is my guess, and it's only a guess. Yeah, I can see it being a situation like our conversation about Roe v. Wade earlier, where they don't throw it out completely, but they defang it substantially. Maybe limited in terms of time frame or the size of companies. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it, I suppose, but I, that's my hunch, and who knows. But, you know, there are two sides that have been debated about this vaccine, and both are plausible. Both are, uh, are influential, and both are well-supported. The Supreme Court is going to walk cautiously through this. They're going to think about it, the consequences, because each of their decisions have consequences, and they're thinking through that, and which they must do. And no matter how this comes out, the decision should be a good one that most Americans, 51%, should agree to. And I think, you know, if you look at the numbers, I, I think it's somewhere up to, you know, three out of four folks above the age of 18 have had at least one, at least their first dose. So when we're talking about vaccines being... Uh, something that's controversial with the vast majority of Americans it isn't. So I do question at this point with mandates, while I support them, how many more people can we feasibly get vaccinated at this point if they haven't done it already? Mm, Good point. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Well, we have about a minute left before we have to uh, take a break, and um, and then we're going to come back with the... uh, with the X-Files, those weird and wacky stories that uh, don't seem like they could be true, but they are. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, if you're listening to us on uh, WFOV, 
Our Voice is Radio 92.1 LPFM in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There's uh, more of the Tom Sumner Program and Armchair Politics uh, We've still got one more segment, my my favorite part of the show, when we wrap up with the uh, with the X Files. But um, stay tuned. There's uh, there's still more to be heard. Hey, <laughs> this is the unknown comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell, East Village Magazine, Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg, Flint Community School, MTA Flint, Flint Comics and Entertainment, Hamity Complete Food Center, The Flint River Watershed Coalition, WH Wisecarver, The Genesee County Road Commission, Long Museum Auto Fair, Thomas Appliance, The Genesee Health Plan, Flipflip Technology, Mark Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program.
Sherman, Cleveland housewife and mother. Hi, I'm a nuclear physicist and commissioner of consumer affairs. In my spare time, I do needlepoint, read, sculpt, take writing lessons, and brush up on my knowledge of current events. Thursday's my day at the daycare center, and then there's my work with the deaf. But I still have time left over to do all my own baking and practice my backhand, even though I'm on call 24 hours a day as a legal aid. How does Ellen Sherman do it all? She's smart. She takes speed, the tiny blue diet pill you don't have to be overweight to need. And then I collect these paper bags, and I have them right here, all folded and everything. In case anyone needs a paper bag, I have yes, one. Yes, speed. Because I fold them neatly, you know, I don't fold them just any old way. I Why not ask your family doctor for a prescription today? And when that runs out, you can ask your neighbor's doctor, and your mother's doctor, and your college roommate's doctor, and your best friend from high school's doctor. Your I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. It is, of course, the coveted X-Files, those weird and wacky stories that uh, are too strange to be true, but they are. We suppose the AI rebellion to overtake humankind is still in its beta phase. In a now viral tweet on Sunday, Kristen Livedahl of Oakdale, Minnesota, said that when her 10-year-old daughter asked the Alexa voice assistant on their Amazon Echo for a challenge, it suggested the child do something lethal. Plug in a phone charger about halfway into a wall outlet, then touch a penny to the exposed prongs. <laughs> <laughs> an, an Amazon spokesperson told HuffPost via email that as soon as the company became aware of this error, it quickly fixed it. We will continue to advance our systems to prevent similar responses in the future, the company said. Is that how robots will destroy the human race? Uh, you're star like <laughs> You wonder yeah. what, what kind of program generated that kind of an idea? I have no Boards idea. Boards of education and parents <laughs> and teachers would think if they saw that <laughs> she's uh, taught or suggested for kids. Well, okay. here's... Touching a penny to something like that. I, I know. <laughs> just I couldn't believe it. And and the thing is, you know, there's there's this thing that you know you get used to, you know, barking out commands, just saying, you know, tell me this, and you get back good information. And and then it says, yeah, well, why don't you touch a penny to a live wire? Right. <laughs> well. An 11-year-old boy from Oklahoma is being honored for his heroism after he saved a choking classmate and rescued a woman from a house fire 
both in the same day. Day uh, Davion Johnson was named an honorary member of both the sheriff's office and the police force and was recognized by the Board of Education in his hometown of Muskogee, a city about 50 miles south, uh, southeast of Tulsa. Davion performed the Heimlich maneuver on a classmate on December 9th and that evening helped a woman from her house that was on fire. The, Muske- the Muskogee uh, County Sheriff's Office wrote on Facebook, uh, Principal Latricia Dawkins told the newspaper that a student was trying to loosen the cap of his water bottle with his mouth when he choked and stumbled into a nearby classroom where Davion rushed over to help. Davion immediately sprinted over and did the Heimlich maneuver. From the account of the witnesses, when he did it, the bottle cap popped out. Davion told the newspaper that he had learned the maneuver on YouTube and encouraged others to learn it in case of emergencies. Later that same day, Davion saved a woman from a burning house. He said he saw her with her walker on her porch and crossed the street to help her get into her truck and leave. I thought, oh, she's not moving very fast, he told Tulsa's News on 6. So I ran across the street and helped her to her truck. He has always indicated that he wants to be an EMT, she said, so he got to put that desire into action and immediately saved that young man. Um, I I guess, can we say, take that, Alexa? (laughs) I guess that, gee. Now, that's the kind of neighbor I want. That's a kid who has had a busy day. <laughs> that's a good kid. That's a good kid. No matter, no matter how you parse it. I figured um, his, his real name was Clark Kent, but uh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's see. Oh, here's a, here's a weird one. For five years... A man who worked in publishing tricked authors and industry insiders into sending him hundreds of unpublished manuscripts, including one from a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, according to federal authorities. Now the alleged fraudster is facing federal charges. Filippo Bernardi, a 29-year-old Italian citizen who was working for publishing company Simon & Schuster UK as a rights coordinator, was arrested on Wednesday as he arrived at uh, JFK Airport in New York. He will appear in a federal court in Manhattan on Thursday. Federal authorities say uh, Bernardini impersonated real people in the publishing industry to fraudulently obtain manuscripts of novels and other books and notes about those books. He obtained hundreds of unpublished manuscripts from August 2016 to July 2021, according to prosecutors. Unpublished manuscripts are works of art to the writers who spend the time and energy creating them. Publishers do all they can to protect those unpublished pieces because of their value, Michael Driscoll, the assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York office, said in a statement. Mr. Bernardini was uh, allegedly trying to steal other people's literary ideas for himself, but in the end, he wasn't creative enough to get away with it, he said. Um, Should this make it into the Guinness Book of Records as the largest case of plagiarism ever? (laughs) It might, yeah, if he's putting his name on all this stuff. That's true. Well, plagiarism is really designed uh, differently than that. 
you you sneakily did something uh, and hope to get a borrow somebody's quote and frame it into your statement. And I don't think that this quite meets that definition. But uh, this guy just openly publishes somebody else's work. That's, if you can get away with it, it's a, it's a great honor. But if you can't, and the chances are you can't by people who always are looking out for plagiarism. Well, that wraps it up for armchair politics. Uh, well, that wraps it up for uh, the X Files, and uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Any uh, any final thoughts before we uh, end the show today? I want to thank uh, our guest uh, for being here today. I really enjoyed him. Great, some great, some great, great insights. Yeah. Delivery, and he had uh, great convincing statements. But, you know, um, I'd like to say this. I, I would hope that people, both Democrats and Republicans, especially Republicans, would drop the critical race theory. What they talk about is a farce. It did happen. And take our country back. If, if both Democrats and Republicans who talk about that take our country back, then where do you, if it's Republicans that are saying that, what do you do with the Democrats? They have as much rights here as anybody else. What do you do about the people of color? Where do they fit in the scheme? Are we causing more division and derision in our societies than need to be there? At times when uh, populations are rising and resources are declining. Thank you. That's it. I just wanted to say that, you know, Paul... Uh, Tom and Henry, thank you so much for having me on. It's really a privilege, privilege to talk to you guys, hear your perspectives, and uh, have great conversations. So just thank you again, and please stay healthy and safe, and uh, hope to talk again soon. And Jazz, I hope you'll come back uh, from time to time and, and help us round out the round table. It'd be an honor. It's, That'd be uh, great, Jazz. You had an awful lot of good insights to, what to, to the conversation. The third chair rotates, and and it's nice to have a uh, a younger perspective. Yes. And, well, thank and, you. And, and Paul and Henry, I rely on uh, both of you so much. Thank you for, for being part of it. Paul Rosicki on the left, Henry Hatter on the right. And, and Always good to be here. So it's a, thank look you. forward to it every Wednesday morning. And our, and our guest uh, uh, sitting in in the third chair today, uh, Jasper Martis or Jazz, and uh, it was it was fun riffing with you today, Jazz, and and thanks for reaching out to me, and I hope uh, you will heed the call. Uh, uh, can we invite Jazz back the next time we collect for dinner? I'll buy him dinner. <laughs> well, I'm you know I'm hoping I'll get together for dinner. I won't let you pay though. I'm I'm hoping that we will. Uh, you know, get back out on the road with armchair politics, and and maybe uh, Jazz would join us in person for one of those. Um, but uh, as long as the the pandemic keeps hanging on, I think we'll just keep doing it this way until until we get a little bit more of an all clear. But anyway, that's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I will be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner program, and I hope that you will be too. 
Thanks again to Paul Rosicki, Henry Hatter, and Jasper Martis for rounding out the uh, the roundtable today, and uh, and to my guests this morning. Uh, who did I have on? Oh, Michael Cotton. Anyway, show. good night, we everybody. Want to acknowledge good night. all of our guests who play such an important role in the show, and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.